Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church New Bern podcast. My name is Paul Scott Chernitsky, and I am one of your hosts. I am rejoined by the Reverend Dr. Anna Pinkney Strait. Hey, Anna. Hey, Paul Scott. How are you? I am doing well. You just gave me some snacks. Well, this is what I do. I have uh, we, snacks in my office. We just did a marathon recording session, and I realized I didn't eat lunch. Yes. Well, I have a couple of snack options in my office at all times, and I even have backup emergency snacks that you know nothing about. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah. uh, our first you know, sermon that we just recorded, um, while I was listening to it and recording it, I was thinking about, man, you must like research a lot. You must go through a lot, find a lot of resources, online books, and we talked a little bit about um, that. But but yeah, what 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 goes into a sermon when you um, when you write it or rewrite it or use partly the old one? What happens? Well, um, so you start with the text in the Presbyterian tradition and other traditions too. But I'm speaking of the Presbyterian tradition because it's obviously what I know best. Um, A sermon is supposed to be exposition of scripture. So you start with the Bible text and some, and then you go from there. And so a lot of seminary is actually learning not everything you will ever need to know, but where do you look for what you need to know? So I have books all over the shelves and a few series of commentaries that are sort of very basic commentaries on the text. So you see, I have a series, I have two or three series that cover the whole Bible over there that all look the same. But then I have all these individual books that some might cover one book of the Bible or be about a topic of theology or pastoral care. So so for this sermon, which is on a passage from the Gospel of Mark that's not included in the Revised Common Lectionary, so there are not millions of things written about it, I looked in my basic commentaries and read what they had to say. I have a book written by two theologians about the Gospel of Mark, so I looked there. Through my seminary, I have a subscription to an online database of journal articles and magazine articles about religion. So I searched for this, and I found two or three pretty good articles. Um, I'll be honest, one of them got discarded because it relied on me knowing Greek. <laughs> and some of it was in English, but it didn't ever translate the phrases. And so so I, I discarded that one. And then there were two that were specifically about this text. One, which was fascinating, but didn't really make much into the sermon, was all about the different eye diseases you can have and, and how blindness would have been affected at the time. It was really, really interesting, but not relevant to the sermon. So I went, so I went with that and used those materials. Um, and sometimes I have a preaching group. So we share papers with each other that we write about texts. They're also online. Um, they're, you know, I know people who translate the passage every week, if it's a lectionary passage, or write a commentary on the lectionary passage. So this one was a little different, because you don't have sort of a wealth of information right there. If you didn't go to um, the in-person service or watched on YouTube yet, mm-hmm. the summer sermon series, you know, um, verses and, and parts of the Bible that aren't in the revised common lectionary. And this one was about like spit. Yes, yes. So that's sort of what's been fun is this summer, we're looking at passages that aren't in the revised common lectionary, but are in the Bible. And today is it's a very short passage in the Gospel of Mark. It's in a really interesting location, which is worth consideration. But it's Jesus healing someone who is blind by and he starts by putting spit saliva in his eye, which is kind of gross. But 
the sermon goes into sort of why that wouldn't have been considered gross. I feel like my mom used used spit to put my hair down. Um, a little different than putting it in your eye. In your eye. Yes. Yeah. And you mentioned in the sermon too, you talked a little, I don't want to give it away because we like to hear it too, but um, you talked about doctors. Um, yeah, they didn't used to know. Right. I mean, now we have germ theory. I mean, you go to the doctor and they're, they wash their hands, they put on gloves, they do all of these things to protect you from germs. We didn't used to know that. So doctors didn't wash their hands. Um you also think if you've ever had a procedure, they clean the area that, you know, if, if you're going to have surgery or something, it gets really, well, they didn't used to do that. So dirt and germs could get in. And and so, yeah, the mortality rate was really high because of infection, because they didn't know. So, um, so this is a very new understanding where that sort of spit in the eye. It actually, well, and that, this goes into the sermon, but, um, but that it was a common healing technique. And so it would not have been considered at all unusual. Is that the book you have right here in front of you? One of them, that yes. That you referenced in the um, sermon. Yes. And if if you know me, I mean, I know I've talked about it with several people here at the church, but it's the Doctors Blackwell, and it's about two sisters, um, one of whom was the first MD ever in the United States, and her sister was the third, when they wouldn't allow women to go to medical schools. Um, she finally got into one medical school because they asked the student body, and they voted to let her in. But later on, they were like, we thought it was a joke. We didn't think it was really going to happen. Okay, cool. Well, I will definitely link that book in the show notes. It's it's one of my favorite books. I really, um, I like it also because the sisters are complicated. They don't believe women should have the right to vote, but they think women should go to medical school. I feel like you've had, this, these have been in a sermon before. It's it's possible. They've shown up before. I, I'm fascinated with this history and different people in different times and their complicated nature. Well, Everyone, enjoy this sermon and check out the book in the show notes and have a great week. We will talk to you next week. Thanks, Paul Scott. I hope you have a great week. Let us pray. God, who calls us to not only see, but calls us to perceive as well. As we turn now to your word, open us that we might understand anew your calling and claim upon our lives. We ask it in your name, amen. Our scripture reading for today comes from the Gospel of Mark, the eighth chapter, verses 22 through 26. They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to his home, saying, Do not even go to the village. Friends, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. If you still have some time in your summer to fit in another good read, let me recommend a book to you. It's entitled The Doctor's Blackwell by Janice Numera. 
It's a biography of the first and the third women to receive MD degrees in the United States. They were sisters. They received their degrees to become doctors. They practiced medicine for women. They started clinics and a hospital for women. And they started a medical school that women could attend. They did so much for medicine. And this book is a story about that journey. The Blackwell sisters lived in the late 19th and the early 20th centuries. And it will not surprise you to hear that not everybody thought that what they were doing was such a good idea. They were met with opposition and hostility at almost each step of their journey. One of those places where that occurred was when they had almost completed their education and were beginning the practical portion of their degree. Their fellow students, all male, and supervising physicians, also male, would frequently refuse to allow the women to make rounds with them, to see patients in their presence. They simply refused to do it. And so that means that meant that Emily and Elizabeth Blackwell frequently had to visit their patients at times when the doctors were not there, at times when nobody else was there in the hospital. And that had an unintended consequence to it. Because they saw their patients when they were not surrounded with other people, when they often didn't even have access to the patient's charts, Elizabeth Blackwell learned how to listen. She learned to inquire about the health of the patient, and so she learned through listening. They also had time to notice something. And one of the things that they noticed was that the outcome for their patients often was connected to how clean their doctors were, when they washed their hands, when their bodies were cleaned. At the time they were learning about medicine and healing people, Louis Pasteur had begun to write about germ theory, but it was not widely accepted or practiced at the time. And so when they were learning how to become doctors, doctors were not expected to wash their hands. Patients' bodies wouldn't be cleaned before they had a surgery or any other kind of procedure. In large part, they had no idea that that kind of simple hygiene could affect patient outcome. And it did affect patient outcomes. Now, the Blackwell sisters did not discover germs. They were, however, among the first to begin to make those correlations, those connections between an infection and the possibility that an infection would occur when you put maybe dirty hands on your body. The chance that you're gonna get sick would increase. Now, why am I thinking about that? Well, it's what came to mind when I read this passage from Mark and we hear that Jesus starts to cure this blind man by putting saliva all over and in his eyes, presumably Jesus's own spit. Well, nope. That's got a pretty big nope for me, and I'm pretty sure that that's not a recommended procedure from the American Academy of Ophthalmology. Putting spit, or mud and spit, as happens in the Gospel of John, is not something we would want to do today. We would know that this is not probably gonna increase this person's chance of vision, but it will likely increase their chance of infection. 
So why does Jesus do this? Why is this what Jesus did? Well, it turns out he did this because this was probably a pretty normal practice for the time. It turns out that this is a technique that people would have known and understood. They would have seen it done over and over again. It was a classic healing technique among Roman physicians and particularly those who called themselves magicians, people who said they had miraculous healing powers. They would often use spit and mud as a way to bring about the healing. And it would have been common and understood like pulling a rabbit out of a hat, sawing a woman in half. This was a classic technique that the people who were witnessing this event would have known what to expect. So we may recoil at the idea of putting spit and mud in someone's eye. The people of the time would have thought it was a pretty logical action. It's what happens next that sets this story apart apart from what the people would have expected and apart from the other miracle stories of healing that are in the Gospels, because it doesn't really work. Putting spit in this man's eyes works, but only in part. The man can see, but not completely. He says people just look like walking trees. It's then that Jesus puts his hands again on the man's face, looks at him, and that is when he is healed completely. That is when he can see clearly. The power of touch, the power of this healing of Jesus makes us think about the power of touch and how important touch is in our world and how much that has changed over the last few years. I was recently in my office and overheard a conversation in the other room, some people talking about family coming to visit, family that they loved but hadn't been able to travel and see in two years. And they had all kinds of questions, questions that just a few years ago would have been inconceivable. They said, I know we're all gonna test for COVID in advance, but when do you test? Do you test before you leave the house or do you test just before you greet your loved one? And when you see your loved one, do you hug? What do you do? I can't imagine that we ever thought we'd live in a world where we needed to ask these questions. That Jesus heals this man simply with touch reminds us how important touch is. It's also important to note that this is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus' healing happens in two phases. It's the only place where there is a staged healing. So why does Mark include it? Why is this in our Gospels if it's so different from the other places where Jesus heals? There are a couple of theories about that. One is that because the use of saliva and mud was a common practice for healers and magicians, but it doesn't fully work here, is a way for Jesus to differentiate himself from the other magicians, the other healers of the day. Mark places this event right after the disciples ask for a sign so that they will know this is Jesus, and right before Jesus starts telling them about the death and resurrection that is to come. And so this two-stage miracle makes a very clear point. Jesus is not like other healers. Jesus is not even a magician. Jesus is the Son of God. And that theory makes sense. It's worth asking, I believe, who do we believe Jesus is? Who do we say that he is? What do our lives say about who Jesus is? 
Is he just a nice man who said some good things? Or is he the word made flesh, the son of God who saves us, who offers us a new transformative path? So this theory about Jesus using this two-stage miracle as a way to differentiate himself makes sense. But I think there's another level to it. As so much of scripture, as happens with so much of scripture, there's not just one way to read it. And another way to read this is that this two-stage healing offers a glimpse into what it means to see, but not really see. To hear, but not fully understand. To see, but not perceive, as is used elsewhere in the Gospels. To know that as much as Jesus can, he tells his disciples about what is going to happen. And they hear it. They see him saying it. But on some level, people still look like trees to them. Peter, in the next paragraph, is going to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. But then, when Jesus follows that by saying that he is going to die and be resurrected, Peter tries to rebuke him. You don't do that when you believe someone is really Jesus is the Lord. Peter sees, but he does not really see. He cannot put faces on the walking trees. I cannot help but wonder how often we are like that. How often do we readily receive Jesus' teachings when they match with our own desires? But when Jesus tells us to give what we'd rather not give, or go where we'd rather not go, or love who we'd rather not love, well, then we only see a cloudy picture, like cataracts covering our eyes. When do we see but not really see? When do we see but not really perceive? As I've wondered about these levels of seeing, I've also wondered if this doesn't start with ourselves. If sometimes we don't really perceive what Jesus is doing, maybe it's because we're also not good at being completely clear about who we are, about what our needs are, about where we are in our own lives. Because most of us are really, really good at showing the world what we think the world wants to see. The world wants to see us healthy and happy and doing well, and no matter what's going on, we try and put on that face. I cannot help but wonder, reflecting on this passage, if maybe one of the ways we can learn to see Jesus more clearly is to be honest and more clear about who we are, to be brave and vulnerable, with ourselves, which then will help us see Jesus more clearly too. A few weeks ago, I read a powerful story about a brewery in Hendersonville, North Carolina. It's a brewery, a brew pub that was started in 2017 by Jonathan and Becky Ayers. The name Triskelion quickly became a mainstay among restaurants and gathering places in downtown Hendersonville. It became known for its beer, for its community events, and for just being an important part of the local landscape. Everything seemed great. The brewery was thriving, business was good. Only there was a problem. Jonathan was an alcoholic, and his wife, Becky, was struggling with her own mental health. Three years into the journey of owning this very successful brewery in the middle of COVID, Jonathan found that in order to save his own life, he needed to go to rehab. 
So he did. And when he got out, he discovered that nobody knew what was going on with them because they hadn't shared it with anyone. They hadn't been open and honest about their weaknesses, about where they were broken. So what do you do? What do you do when you are seen only in part, when you show the world only part of yourself? How can the world do anything but see only in part? So for Becky and Jonathan, that meant taking a very scary step, the scary step of being honest, of being willing to allow others to see them fully. And that meant that when a buyer could not be found for their brewery, they made the decision to close it and to be open and public about why they were closing it. They did that with their last day on June 18th of this year. They aren't sure what's next. They only knew that they needed to take that step and to be clear and honest if they were going to be faithful in their lives. Jonathan wrote that this honesty was a step towards freedom. He said, and that is where our fire, our passion, our love in life has moved to. We love to be honest about our faults, vulnerable with our feelings, and to share the love and hope of a God who saved our lives and our souls, of a God who loves and gives freely with mercy to all, of a God who on my very worst day, in all my shame and guilt, loved me completely. It is his powerful love and grace that has kept me sober for 21 months, Jonathan said. And he said the opposite of addiction is community. And so he shared it. He shared it with people who frequented their business. He shared it with the community. They shared what was going on with them and why they were closing. He was met with love. He was met with support. And then Isaiah shared words from Isaiah 50. Jonathan shared words from Isaiah 58. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. If we want to see Jesus clearly, doesn't that begin with seeing ourselves clearly? If we want others to see us clearly, doesn't mean we need to allow them to do that. Doesn't it also mean we need to look for those places where we think people might be hiding or afraid to uncover so that they know of the love that is there, so that they know the grace that exists? What if seeing God more clearly begins with seeing ourselves more clearly and allowing others to see us as we are? All of us in need of healing, all of us in need of forgiveness. Isn't that what church is all about? That we come here not to celebrate our successes, but to acknowledge that we all need God. We all need grace. And it's grace that knits us together. Day by day, O oh, dear Lord, three things I pray, to see thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, follow thee more nearly, day by day. So as we ponder what it means to have a little spit in our eyes and to see people who look like trees, may we also be on a path to seeing God more clearly, seeing and perceiving ourselves more clearly too but please, maybe a little less spit in the eye. Alleluia.
Amen. Our benediction for today was something I first heard at a high school graduation here locally. I asked the chaplain to share it with me and he graciously agreed. Neither one of us knows the original source, but I wanted to share it with you. As we leave this place, we remember that there is nowhere we can go that God is not. And so friends, go then. Go where there is ignorance, go where there is need, go where there is danger, go where there is narrowness, go where there is fear, go in courage, go in doubt, go in the wisdom of knowing and not knowing, go in strength and in the strength of weakness, go in the joy that overcomes sorrow and the love that casts out fear. Go, and may the blessing of God Almighty be with you, now and always. Alleluia. Amen. Mm -hmm.